La Traviata. Everybody knows La Traviata. Everybody, I think, must have wept um, either bold, sobbing tears or at least damp eyes for the noble, self-sacrificing Violetta, who gives up her lover, destitute and dies of tuberculosis at the end of the opera. Everyone, I'm sure, has had the tunes in their head that simply won't go away, that run on and on. And I remember one of the very first poems I had to learn at my first school was Alfred Noy's poem, The Barrel Organ. Um, and there La Traviata sighs another sadder song, and there Il Trovatore cries a tale of deeper wrong. All of the happening while there were lilacs at Kew. Deep disappointment, by the way, there are no lilacs at Kew, or there weren't when I went. Um, when Verdi and his librettist Francesco Maria Piravi were working on La Traviata in the early 1950s, though, they knew that they were creating not something that was simply full of amazing tunes, not something that touched our hearts, but something that was really, really dangerous. This was going to be a modern dress opera about an upmarket prostitute. And the intention was, and you can hear it in what somebody has described as the most angry music in Verdi's early period, uh, as an opera about social hypocrisy, particularly amongst men in their attitude to women. And it was to be set in Paris in a demi-monde that the composer himself knew. From Verdi from, from lived for long periods between 1847 and 1852 in Paris, a city that was embracing an entirely new artistic creed, realism, an intention in art to show the world as it really was. Think of Impressionist painters delighting in the railway stations, the cafes, the café concert, the streets, the green parks of this up-to-date, modern 19th century city. Alexandre Dumas' novel, La Dame aux Camélias, was based, of course, on his own relationship with a celebrated member of the Demi-Monde, a world that was enjoyed by men only. Women, wives and daughters stayed safely at home. These were other women who were part of the Demi-Monde. And it may well be that Verdi uh, actually saw the play that Dumas made from his novel uh, when it opened in February 1852 in Paris. We do know that by the October of 1852, he'd acquired a copy of the play and had decided he wanted to turn it into an opera. It was always intended for Venice, for La Fenice Opera House, where Rigoletto had had its premiere and where it was generally believed that censorship was perhaps a little more relaxed than elsewhere within northern Italy. Thus, the shock of the subject matter might to some extent be allowed. But even, I'm afraid, modern-day courtesans was too strong a meat for Venice. And so the first performance moved the story of Violetta Valerie and her love affair with Alfredo Gemmo to the beginning of the 18th century, circa 1700, it said in the first programme. Indeed, it wasn't until the 1880s that Gemmo, the father, uh, was allowed to wear a 19th century top hat when he came to ask Violetta to give up his son so that his daughter might make a satisfactory marriage. Violetta dying of consumption, of course, that curse of the new industrial city. Um, some of you who are older may remember the sign, still in buses when I was growing up, don't spit. It was, of course, a warning against passing on the whole uh, bugs that are associated with tuberculosis. That must have made much more sense in a modern 19th city, century city than the beginning of the 18th century. The first performance of the opera was on March the 6th, 1853, in Venice. It was jeered at times by the audience when it began, who directed some of their scorn at the casting of the soprano Fanny Salvini Donatelli in the lead role of Violetta. Though she was greatly admired throughout Italy as a singer, she was thought to be rather too large and rather too old at 38 to credibly play a young woman uh, dying of consumption. 
Nevertheless, the first act did meet with applause and there was cheering at the end. But in the second act, the audience began to turn viciously against the performances, especially after the baritone, Felice Varese, and the tenor, Lodovico Graziani, had had both arias of theirs. The day later, Verdi wrote to his friend Muzio in what has now become perhaps his most famous of all letters, La Traviata, last night a failure. Was the fault mine or the singer's? Time will tell. Of course, time has told. This opera has become the fifth most performed opera in the world. It's up there with La Boheme, Rigoletto, Carmen and the Magic Flute. After making some revisions between 1853 and May 1854, mostly affecting Acts 2 and 3, La Traviata was presented again for a second time in Venice, but this time at the Teatro San Benedetto. This performance was a huge critical success, largely due to the soprano who took the role of Violetta. Well, we have a trio of guests tonight to explore Verdi's opera and to talk about making opera happen here at English National Opera. We have Claire Watkins, who's covering the role of Violetta, and she'll be sharing her ideas about this particular role, its difficulties, and what it's like to sing one of Verdi's most affecting heroines. Also, one of his most demanding roles. We're also joined by Martin Fitzpatrick, a man of many English national opera hats. He's a translator of libretti into English. It's Martin's translation of Piave's original libretto that we're to hear tonight. Martin Fitzpatrick is also head of music here at the Coliseum. But our first guest is John McMurray, who's head of casting for English national opera. Will you please welcome everybody, John McMurray. So I'd like, to start, I'd like to start by simply asking you, how did you get to be head of casting here? Um, do you want the long version or the short version? I think the short version for today. Um, for about a dozen years before I came here, I was an agent managing singers and uh, some conductors and directors and worked very closely with John Berry, who was doing my current job at the time. Um, and when John became artistic director, we had a number of conversations about who he should get to be his new head of casting and he'd say what do you think about this person and I'd say god that's a terrible idea or I would say do you have you thought about this person and, and this went on for a while and then I'm told a couple of people some within the company and some elsewhere in the business said to him you know there is an obvious person to do this and uh, meaning me and he said uh, but he's not interested and he was right I wasn't interested I had no interest in the job at all until eventually one of these people said well have you actually asked him and um, he asked me, and 30 seconds after he asked me, I thought, oh, I really want to do that. And that's how it happened. Is this a job you can train for? I mean, this is a kind of um, an MBA course in being casting director. I mean, how do you, how um, do you... If there is, I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> I got here by a very strange route, but I think everything... Uh, everything involved in that route is very useful to what I do now. Um, I actually started my working life as a journalist. Um, a proper journalist, not a music critic. Um, uh, You're in safe company. I can't see anybody. Um, although I did indeed write about music as well. And then uh, gradually I was working for a um, daily newspaper up in Yorkshire and started to do some freelance work for a music magazine in London. And a job came up there as deputy editor and I moved to that. And the offices were just across the road from the stage door of Covent Garden at the time. And I got to know a lot of people there. And a job came up editing the programs and publications. 
And at that time at Covent Garden, it was a bit like a giant village hall, really. I remember there were 18 members of one family on the stage crew. And uh, if you were enthusiastic, you could be taken on to do one job and you could turn it into the job you wanted it to be. I don't, I don't think they let you do that there now. It's all a bit more corporate. But um, I made it effectively into a dramaturg's job, although we never used that word because it would have frightened the horses. <laughs> what do you think the particular skills that you need to deploy as a casting director? I I think it's a mixture. I think a lot of it is experience. You simply have to have listened to an awful lot of singers. And I've been listening to singers for 40 years. And you build up a store of knowledge from that experience. Um, the six years I did at Covent Garden, I was in rehearsals or performances all the time. And hearing, it was interesting to hear, one of the things was hearing people deal with things that weren't quite right for them. And if they had a proper technique, they could deal with it. And if they if their technique wasn't so great, you could see where they got into trouble. So I, th I think that experience, you can't buy it. You just have to do it. You have to have a, an instinct, I think. You have to have an intuition for how a group of singers will fit together. You have to have an intuition, particularly because we can work quite far in advance sometimes, how a voice might develop. And, you know, you're not always right, but what gets you into this place is is having some sense of how those things will work out. You have to know the repertory. You know, you have to know what the challenges of particular roles are. Um, and you need to build relationships, relationships with singers, with artist managers, with other opera companies. In the 40 years that you've been thinking mm. about singers and almost as long working in opera houses, mm -hmm. I mean, the really great change has been we've moved from people who wanted to hear beautiful singing to people who want to hear beautiful singing and want to watch great acting. And I wonder how, and that's another skill you must acquire, being able to instinctively grasp how good a performer at both levels yeah. the artist you're looking at is. It, it, I'm glad you put it that way because it's not to me a choice. You know, you can't have one or, one or the other. I mean, you don't ever, always have everything that you want, but your aim is always to have both those things together and they they're very closely related it is hard sometimes you know we hear people in auditions and I, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is talking with young singers about audition technique because it's a strange thing but it's absolutely central to having a career and you if you're doing an audition you're not giving a performance but what you want to do is convey that you would know what you were doing if you were giving a performance of that role. And it's getting that... I mean, the truth is, you don't very often hear terrible auditions. I mean, actually, sometimes they brighten the day up a bit when you hear someone really terrible. Most people, though, are very, very competent. What you're looking for is that something extra, whether it be in the personality or, I think, in the sound. I mean, in the six and a half years I've been here, I'm more and more convinced Sound on its own is not enough. But if you don't have the sound, all the other things won't compensate. Are there moments when you've listened to singers um, and you've thought to themselves, it's a fantastic voice, yes, they've got all the things that I would hope for for the roles I'm thinking about, but they're not going to fit in to yeah. an ensemble. They're not yeah. going to belong to the company. Yeah. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's, you, can't, you cannot cast roles in isolation. And it's, it's not always in my experience, a, a conscious process. It is part of that instinct of, of who will fit together. Sometimes 
it, you know, you can surprise yourself about how well people will fit together. And then the odd, the odd thing happens physically that you don't plan, but then you realise, God, that was terrific. When we revived our Mingela butterfly last year, um, Mary Plazas came back, who is singing Cho Cho San, who is what four foot eleven, four foot ten. Pamela Helen Stephen um, was the Suzuki, who's short. Um, and we had Gwyn Hughes-Jones, John Fanning, Canadian baritone, who's six foot four, and one of our young Howard artists, Kathy Young, who's six foot two. And I suddenly, on, in a stage rehearsal, saw that we had these two tiny Japanese dolls and these three giant Americans. <laughs> and I thought, perfect. <laughs> but I didn't plan it like that. Oh, you must have been, you must have been. <laughs> Can you, I, mean, I know this is unfair, and, and tell me if it is, but have, just give me an example of a moment when you've been sitting in an audition or indeed in a performance when you've been looking and thinking about singers where suddenly what one might call the wow or zing factor has come into play and you've thought, my God. Well, that's a funny thing, really. Um, Sophie Bevan, I'd seen when she was at college... And quite early on in the time I was here, we did a not very successful production of uh, Popea. And we cast her in a small role of Amor in that. And because she'd sung Popea at college, we asked her to cover Popea as well. And one stage, an orchestra rehearsal, uh, the Popea was sick, and Sophie did the rehearsal. And I remember sitting in the stalls as she did it and thinking, you know, I thought she was good. I think she's an awful lot more than good. And from that moment, we built a path of roles over four seasons, leading to um, to the Rosen Cavalier, Sophie. And, you know, that was absolutely seeing someone taking the opportunity, commanding the stage. That must there. be enormously exciting. Oh, it's the best. To, to plan a singer. Mm. But it must also be very exciting for singers to be part of a company that does actually start you off at the bottom as a young uh, graduate from one of the colleges, postgraduate, uh, and follows you through your potential. Mm. It's a big part of what we do, and it's the whole point of the Harwood Artists Scheme, is to think in long-term relationships and to think... It's not just about what people do here. You know, we have a role and a responsibility in the operatic world as a whole. And um, seeing that development, helping that development, whilst providing a, a kind of safe haven that these singers can feel connected to, I think is great. And it's, it's really important. Have there ever been moments when you know you were right, you've made your choices, but your director, producer, or your conductor have uh, taken issue with your choices? What happens then? Well, you know, it's a very collaborative process. Um, it's... <sighs> You know, once we've started looking at the repertory, and there are lots of different reasons for why works will get chosen in a particular season. And sometimes my role is almost a negative one, that, that a conductor or a director will say, I want to do this piece, and I'll say to John Berry and Ed Gardner, we cannot reliably cast that. We're just not going to be able to do it at the level we would, like, we would want to do it. But then you start talking... Um, Obviously, with Ed, we're in touch all the time. With some guest conductors, we'll sit down. And, and people, particularly people I know, or directors who I know. I mean, D David Alden, I used to manage. David Alden and I can cast an opera in 10 minutes because we know exactly what we're talking about. We know, you know, he can say a name and it'll tell me 
the three people I need to be looking at or whatever. With some other directors, particularly rather inexperienced ones, it can be a longer process of taking them through it. With Kovicny, on this Traviata, it was an interesting mixture because um, this production was first done in Graz and my first meeting with him was when they did what is, some of you may know, is called a Bauprobe, which is a year before the production goes into rehearsal, which is a, where there's a kind of mock-up of the stage set and the director will talk through his concept and look at some of the practical difficulties. And we had a meeting and we just started talking about the piece and I remember him saying to me, he said, I don't know the singers you're going to use. I don't know the people who you employ. This is what I think I need and I'll trust you to find those people. So it was... And then, of course, I'd seen the production then in Graz before we made some final decisions. But it was, I mean, the trust is very important in that. You have to build that kind of relationship. Um, sometimes you do have disagreements. And sometimes the, the, the bigger problem is you don't, when I was an agent, I was the man who ran the company, I, I, when I worked at IMG, a famous agent called Tom Graham, very, very, very smart man. And he used to say, casting operas is very, very easy until you have to think about fees and availability. And it's absolutely true. You can have the best idea in the world, and that thing is not available. So you have to go elsewhere. John McMurray, mm. thank you very much indeed. Stay with us, because I'm sure there'll be questions to you. Thank mm. you very much indeed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by Claire Watkins. Would you please welcome her? She's covering the role of Violetta Valerie in this production of Terriata. Claire Watkins. <laughs> and Claire, you should tell us, what are you going to sing for us first? going to sing the very famous Aforze Louis, but it's going to be cut down, so I'm going to sing uh, just one verse of the Sempre Libre, in English, obviously. <laughs> Chose from a sea of fierce eyes. 
Claire Watkins, bravo. Thank you very much. And at the piano, Martin Fitzpatrick, who is a very grand member of the company, the director of music playing for you. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about this Violetta. And we can see images from this production on the screen mm. next to me, a kind of foretaste of what we're going to see tonight in the theatre. Um, why do you think, in the Irish, why does Violetta, having uh, said that she's going to get on with the life of pleasure, why does she let Alfredo fall in love with her? And why does she perhaps fall in love with him? Well, she realises this is her last hope of something before the inevitable, which is she's going to die. And um, in him, she just sees this kind of like, this just little glimmer of happiness and just delight before the inevitable happens. She calls it, of course, in Italian, crozze e delizia. She knows it's going to be painful, cross yeah. and joy too. Absolutely, a, t a, a delicious torment. Do you think Violetta is a victim, or does she have some sense of her own independence as a woman in this society? Um, I think uh, from this production, it's up to the audience really to make that decision. Um, I think she's she definitely, yes, of course, she's a free spirit. Um, she's a victim of her circumstance. She enjoys the finer things in life, and therefore she relies on those um, older gentlemen who come into it and provide those things for her. So... And, and do you think she's dependent in any way on men, be it the Baron, be it Alfredo, for a sense of who she really thinks she is? Hmm, tricky. She's such a complex character. She, she doesn't need them to define her. I think she's quite a strong idea of, of who she is. But she needs them to define the, her, herself in those moments that she's in with them, if that makes sense. Sort of, um, when you were working with, with tonight's director, Peter Konvichny, what, what kind of things was he asking you to explore with him about this woman? Um, he had a very, very clear idea of, of what his Violetta was going to be. Um, it's, uh, he likes the idea that she's this complex woman, this woman who uh, wants to embrace love, but also when she m makes that idea that she's going to take it on board immediately, and especially seen in the way that um, you have to sing the aria I've just sang, and, and the way it's directed on stage. She's very defiant. She's sort of, you know, she's, she doesn't want to be sort of taken in by this love, but so she's just like, no, I'm going to live the life I want to. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. Um, but then two minutes later, she's, you know, shacked up in the country with Alfredo. She's, and it's so, so even though convincingly had these, he had, he knows what he wants, and I think without them being clearly sort of Discussed, you, you have to just find them in your journey of the character. Yes, do. I think just one thing, one thing that slightly annoys me, you know, there's a sort of caricature that German directors come to opera and they have the concept and it's an unalterable set of, of uh, a paradigm of what the thing is. That what's fascinating, I think, about watching Convictiony work, I don't know if you would agree, Claire, is that particularly for the three main characters, they are not just one thing. All three of them are complex human individuals who change in the course of the opera. And I, th I think the way people choose to ignore that or blind themselves to it means that they deprive themselves of what's really significant about this production. Sorry. Not at all. <laughs> but it, Thank it, you, John. It, it, <laughs> 
just listening to you singing, the, the, the kind of conclusion to, to Act One is to be reminded just how phenomenally difficult vocally yes, this role is. I mean, you, you're required to have sort of 30 years of top flight experience <laughs> as a kind of, you know, soprano, dramatic soprano before you even begin, let yeah. alone what you have to do in the, in the final. And mm. your producers, you know, the optional top at the end. Optional, yes. <laughs> tell, tell us about the demands vocally. Um, well, I mean, you basically have to have three voices to sing Violetta, you, um, three voices for each act. Act one is the um, a lyric coloratura, uh, act two is, is, is lyric, and then act three is more dramatic. So it's uh, very unusual to find that in, in individual voices. It's, it's a you're challenge. You're going to share the last, I think. Uh, I tell am. us what you're going to sing for us last. Yes, this is the final aria that um, Violetta sings. Um, she's uh, received a letter from uh, Je Mon Père to say that Alfredo is on his way back and um, to, to, to her in the country after knowing what she's sacrificed um, to, uh, for, for Je Mon Père. And um, she just... He, he hasn't arrived. She's on her own. She's literally got a couple of hours left to live. And... All she can do is it's is just think about what she had and what she has lost because there's there's nothing left for her now. Claire, thank you. We're reaching for our hankies as you make your <laughs> way to the microphone. I've waited and waited, but I'll never see them. Yet the doctor gave me hope I would recover. Oh, with this sickness, all hope of life is. 
Fair walking, thank you very much. And we're joined now by Martin Fitzpatrick, who, as I've said before, is indeed head of music here at English National Opera. Um, but you also worked on the version that we're going to hear tonight. Yes. Tell me a little bit about, um, well, not this particular one, but you also done other versions. How did you start working on a translation from German, English, Italian, into English, Italian, French? How, how does the process begin? Um, well, I think what's most important is that you know and love the music. And then, uh, and then what I do is I actually write the entire libretto out to, to kind of, knowing the music as well as I do, uh, to divorce it and then notice what are the things that, that are unusual about the way that either Verdi or Piave have structured the, the work in such a way that you go, that that goes, gosh, I, I had never noticed that that, that was the, that the rhyme structure or, or that, that Verdi has deliberately broken a particular quatrain at a particular point. And it, it, it throws up fresh ideas. And the other thing I did, as John said, um, this, this production was done in Graz. And actually what was terribly useful was getting a DVD of the Graz production, which was done, of course, in Italian, and watching it and seeing how that triggers ideas of what, what might be the English words that best suit it. Do you ever look at other translations? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, there, are, there are three in, that I've seen here at the Colosseum, the David Poutney one, Edmund Tracy, uh, before and after that, I think, mm -hmm. and, and Stephen Clark, which was the most recent one. It's also terribly useful. There are on, on the web, there are two excruciatingly appalling uh, translations, which, uh, and, and that's once again, it's kind of liberating. You, you, you go, you see, the, you see their, um, their thought processes. It's terribly interesting to see their thought processes, and you, you can reject them, or you can embrace them and put them into another way of, of translating. So it's it, 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 see, seeing other people, why, why have they chosen those words, and do you agree with them, in which case you pinch them. And if you don't, then you try have to come up with uh, other ideas for yourself. What technically are the most difficult things to adapt from one language to another? I mean, particularly when you're hearing the music in your head as you're doing this. What are the, the kind of the, the things you stub your toe on? Um, well, uh, this piece is a piece set in Paris, written in Italian, that we are singing in English. So, you, uh, so the, the the first thing is you immediately um, think about: Am I going to sing Alfredo? Am I going to contemplate singing Alfred? Or you know, and 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 so the, the word Alfredo is so intrinsic to the way that the music's written that we decided. But but then so you need to give a flavour of French. So there are some messieurs and some some things in there to to hint at hint at the Parisian setting of it. But actually. Um, helped by the, the relatively abstract set, I've kind of avoided even. I don't think I mentioned Paris. I mentioned city and country, but but it, it was a, it was a deliberate policy to not go. Uh, I, we're, we're singing in English and we're talking about Paris. So so th those are always things that, 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 as you say, one stubs one's toe on. That you go, how how am I going to make it so that that people don't hit their head against a particular word? Presumably, the other key thing is not for you to draw attention to your libretto. 
I mean, I'm, we can all think of very clever libretti, uh, by no names, but uh, where, where, where you constantly think how clever it is, and you stop hearing the music, and you stop watching the performance. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a great lover of Sondheim, but you kind of, you wait for the rhyme, and you go, oh, that's clever, he's right, virgin and urgent. And, uh, uh, but, uh, and actually, that's the wrong way to go about translating opera libretto. If you go, if you go, Oh, I just know that rhyme, and if I can squeeze it into that part, it, then, then, uh, then everyone will think I'm terribly clever. It's not about that. You, you've got to start from the sense. And um, what I find, and my wife will testify to this, is, is that you, you, uh, usually late at night I'll go, oh, I'm not, not getting this, the, these two lines. And, and at some time around three or four o'clock I'll go, oh, yeah, oh, oh, I've got an idea. You know, and... and, 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 and um, uh, uh, Ryan Wigglesworth, who conducted our Carmen, call, said, uh, called it earworms, and I sort of have word worms. So <laughs> you, the worms are going around in your head, and, and what, what, what are words that can possibly fit there? A bit of a chilling insight into the private life, if I may say, <laughs> of the Fitzpatrick's if you're busy working at three o'clock in the morning. I'm not busy, it's, it's, it's purely subconscious, it's, you know, <laughs> but, but so, some, somewhere between going to bed and waking up, there's some, something has been working in the back of the mind. Did, 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 did Conventionally, as you were working with him on this, make changes to what you'd, you'd put into English he, for this production? He did, he did. I mean, his English improved as, as, uh, as the run or the rehearsal process continued. But he was very interested in what I had done and how I had translated things. And, and we did change certain things because he said, no, that's not what I'm meaning. And uh, uh, I mean, what I... What I think this is a great production for ENO in that, in that what it does is focus everyone's attention on the performers. There's, there's nowhere to hide. There's no champagne and chandeliers here. Um, so, so, what, so it's absolutely one where we've worked incredibly hard on the diction of the, of the cast to make sure that your focus is on them and on, on their faces so that, that you're hopefully, even though we do use surtitles, you're... you're Attention is not going up to 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 above the the um, the curtains. So so that your focus is on the direct contact with the singers and what they're doing. And and the cuts that Convictionally has made, most notably, I suppose, Flora's party. These are to to again keep your mind concentrated on what he sees as the central drama. Absolutely. I mean, what one of the things that he said is, uh, I believe that Violetta is the only human being and everyone else in, in this society is sort of non-human and so it, by cutting the gypsy music and the matador music he's really focused the the drama down onto violetta and 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 to a certain lesser extent germain pere and alfreda but but it's all about how things affect her and there's there's no no possible deviation from the tragedy of violetta it is a pretty vicious society that, that she lives in, isn't it? It is. I mean, um, he, he and um, Convictionally was saying that this is absolutely... That he'd done some research into, into 19th century Parisian life, and as, as you were implying, the demi-monde, was, there, well, there were some pretty disgusting things going on, so, so uh, he absolutely... It, any swinging parties that we think of as being a 20th or 21st century habit, they were swinging away in the 19th century Paris. And we might remind ourselves of something very simple, that in the end, Violetta died of what is sometimes rather sadly called the beautiful disease, tuberculosis, yes. consumption. So many of these men are going to die too of syphilis. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is not at all beautiful. No, no, no. I mean, um, what, what is terrifically interesting, which I, I only 
was made aware of when I was translating is um, one never talks about the disease and it's, it's only the doctor in Act 3 who says la tisi non li accorda che poche ore the, the consumption is only allowing her a few more hours um, and, uh, and I've deliberately not called it consumption I've called it the disease partly to, to make it a little more abstract and partly because disease and la tisi has, have a pleasing homophony but, but, um, but, that, uh, but the point being that, that it could and because we have contemporary setting it, that let's not limit ourselves to what this disease could be and, and, and open up the possibilities of other things we have a little time left ladies and gentlemen um, and if you'd like to ask questions of any of our splendid three guests please do if you'd like to put your hand up catch my eye there is a rolling microphone roving microphone probably rolling too but roving <laughs> yes I've been fascinated by the idea of joint productions um, what has changed from Graz and, and what, what's been brought from Graz and what has not been brought? Can you help with that? Uh, physically, <laughs> um, the chair. Um, the, the concept of the costumes and, and so on is the same as it was in Graz. That some of the details are not identical. That there have been alterations in, in Violetta's wig, which relate to Corinne as compared to Marlis Peterson, who, who did it in Graz. Um, but the um, the what you see, I mean, the the, the performances are not identical because there are different people doing them. But essentially, the structure of the production is the same. And the, I don't know, whether, when I say the chair, I'm speaking absolutely literally. There is one chair, and it came from Graz. And the curtains? The curtains are a mixture, I think. <laughs> um, but can, can I mm. just say that, what, uh, as John's implying, that the biggest change is the performance, and, and Herr Konvichny, of, of, his concept has not altered, but because he has different people in front of him, that triggers thoughts in his his mind that goes, "Ah, oh, you could do it this way." So they're not do, they're not doing a carbon copy of of what what is on the DVD. No. So so they're, they're, it's what they have also brought that that conforms to Herr Konvichny's ideas, but but they, they've just moved in slightly different directions. Uh, our Violetta and Alfredo are significantly younger than the singers in Graz, and that changed for Peter quite a lot of the way that relationship would work. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say is he, I, one of my early meetings with him, he was so pleased we were doing this in English. He would much have preferred to have done it in German in Graz than in, in Italian. I mean, you'll see tonight, but as, I, as I've mentioned before, the point is that there is very little peripheral design. So, and, and what, what Peter Konvichny is absolutely about is, is focusing the drama down. So he was, John says he was delighted to do it in English. He, want, he wants the audience to be focusing on the singers and what they're saying and how, how the words inform their, their acting. And, and, and what he said is the surtitles, if, if he felt that everyone's attention was going like that all the time, that he would lose that. Do we have another question? Yes. Microphone on its way. You said that uh, performers have to be able to both act and sing. Are there any roles that you're aware of 
that um, would benefit from having an actor who could sing rather than a singer who could act. <laughs> it depends. Uh, look, we, we are performing operas, and there, there are a range of... There are, there are expectations in the way the pieces are written that make vocal demands that have to be met. Now, there are pieces that, that we have performed here, Condide, for example, where some of those roles clearly are not intended to be sung by operatic voices. So, in that case, then you're looking slightly differently. But what is hard... Um, <coughs> I mean, when we did The Death of Klinghoffer... There's the role of the Austrian woman who, for 80% of her role, speaks. She only sings at the very, very end. But she has to speak following a conductor. And it's not a skill that you can pick up overnight. An actor following a conductor is not easy. So in the end, there, we went for a, an opera singer who could deliver the, the dialogue rather than an initial idea of the directors had been to go for an actor who could sing. But the musical difficulties were too great. I mean, the last time... I don't know whether Gondoliers was in your time, but we, yes. had, we had two Dukes of Plaza Toro. Yeah. And, and one was uh, an acting singer. singer, and the other was a singing actor. And, and as John says, what the, the, uh, they, were they were both excellent and very different, but, uh, but one of the biggest challenges for, for the actor was the business of how do I respond to a conductor's beat, which is something that even when one has been in musicals, uh, one is more often responding to the drum beat in, in the kit, in the, or in the pit. Um, so, so one is not hearing something that helps one absolutely latch onto the beat and, and the response of the visual response to a conductor going and one is, is something that, that was very challenging for that particular person. Mm. I think we've been beaten by the clock as inevitably happens. So some thank yous. Um, thank you to all of you for being here um, and look forward to what I have to think for me was an absolutely gripping dramatic evening in the Opera House. Um, our thanks to also to our guests John McMurray, Claire Watkins and to Martin Fitzpatrick. Thank you very much indeed.